You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. On today's show, I'm joined by my buddy Krista Bontrager from All the Things Podcast and Center for Biblical Unity. And together, we got to interview Nancy Piercy about her book, Love Thy Body. Now, if you have not read Love Thy Body yet, I just want to recommend this to all of my listeners. This is a book that, and we'll get into this more as the podcast goes on, but this is the book that is going to give you the philosophical and biblical answer to all ideologies that go against the human body. Things like abortion, uh, transgenderism, it gives a compassionate but philosophical and biblical approach to the topic of homosexuality and how our culture has gotten to the place where we have made our sexuality our identity. This book, Love Thy Body, is really just a top resource. It's, it's If you've got like five or six books that are must-haves on your shelves, this is one of them. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to jump right in with my friend Krista as we get to interview the great Nancy Piercy. And we are going to have a great time tonight with Nancy Piercy, the one and only um, author of the book, Love Thy Body. And uh, it's a book that uh, is just still so relevant, even though it's been out a couple of years. Uh, what she has put together in this book is still so relevant and increasingly so. So I am looking forward to this conversation tonight. Yeah, I am too. And I have to say something about this book because there are only a select few books that I will buy on all three platforms on Kindle, hard copy, and Audible. And this is one of those books that's that important. I bought it on all three of those platforms so that I can cross-reference if I'm out, you know, walking or running. I can listen. Uh, I can have my highlights saved on my Kindle. And, of course, if I want to thumb through my hard copy, I can. So just highly recommended book. Uh, when I first read this book, I was so impressed with it, It's just I remember thinking this is an absolute takedown of uh, the pro-abortion arguments that we hear and uh, and it also with gender and, and I know we're going to talk about a lot of that tonight but just highly recommend this book to anybody watching us tonight who you want to sharpen your apologetic when it comes to these issues this is the book you want to get yes I I completely agree and you know we're, we're living in this weird cultural moment now where people are shouting their abortions changing their pronouns and many of us are asking how in the world did we get here? And I'm looking forward to this conversation with Nancy Piercy to help us kind of unravel why our culture thinks that these approaches are rational. And um, I think it's going to be a great conversation. So let's get her on here. And I want to say welcome to Nancy Piercy. And we're going to the anticipation it is the anticipation it's all good 
Bob's trying to juggle the Zoom account. There she is. All right. And just do a quick mic check. Uh, if we can hear you, Nancy, are you unmuted yes. and everything? Great. Yes, testing, testing. I yes, we are good. All right. So for the, the two people who are watching <laughs> who don't know who you are, Nancy, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the book, Love Thy Body. Uh, well, I teach at Houston Baptist University. I teach apologetics and I'm scholar in residence, um, which means I get time on the job to write books, which is <laughs> wonderful. Um, and the reason I wrote the book <laughs> is that these issues are just so cutting edge. And I'll, I'll bet everybody who's here tonight has some friend, some family member, some person close to them. Um, the book, I Love Thy Body, has a lot of personal stories. Um, because they're personal, most of them are put in as pseudonyms. You know, they're put in with fake names. So you may not know when you read the book. <laughs> that they're actually uh, very personal stories. But just like myself, I find more and more people are having to deal with issues like abor abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, euthanasia. Everyone now is dealing with these issues personally. In the past, you could have treated them as just sort of abstract uh, apologetic issues, right? You could say, okay, okay, as Christians, we need to have an answer to this issue. No, no, nowadays, you have to personally know how to deal with individuals in your life who are actually working through these uh, issues, you know, on a very personal level. So it, it makes you approach much different. And I think, you know, a lot of people say um, that's what's different about lovely bodies, but it's very obvious. I've really talked with real people <laughs> who are struggling with these issues. Uh, so it's, it, it makes a big difference when you've talked to and struggled alongside somebody who's worked with this for many, many years. So that's kind of how I got into it is I just, I couldn't avoid it in my personal life. Nancy, I, I think that's such a great point to bring out because all of us know someone who is dealing with some of these issues on one level or another, and they're deeply personal. These are things that uh, really hit people in the deepest parts of our souls, I think, is issues of gender and abortion and, and sexuality and some of these things. And you discuss a number of these issues in your book um, that might seem unrelated, things like transgender issues, abortion, even cremation, the afterlife. What do you see as the thread that binds all these ideas together? How, how do these all make sense in the same context? Yeah, I, I appreciate you asking that because that is another thing that's really unique about the book is that in Lovely Body, I show that there's a common philosophical thread or a common worldview thread that connects them all. They, you know, Francis Schaeffer used to say one reason that Christians are so ineffective is that they kind of approach each issue in bits and pieces. That was his word, bits and pieces. Uh, instead of understanding that there's a common underlying worldview. But let me illustrate by just starting with the cutting edge issue of our day, which is transgenderism, because that's also where it's easiest to see. The underlying worldview for all of these issues turns out to be a divide between our body and who we feel we are as a person. So in transgenderism is very evident because transgender activists themselves explicitly say your gender identity has nothing to do with your biological sex. Mm. You know, the kids, kids down to kindergarten are being taught, you know, just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. Just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl. And so there's this, this alienation from the body 
that is being taught all the way down to, to kindergarten. In fact, there was a, a news article not long ago. Uh, it was a first grader, a little girl who came home from school and said, Mom, my, my teacher said, just because I have girl boys doesn't mean I'm a girl. And she was very distressed. She, you know, so what am I? And she, she literally said to her mother, please take me to a doctor so we can find out what I am. And the, uh, the reason it was in the news is that the, the uh, parents were suing the school board for emotional distress. But the point is that the, the worldview then that's being taught to, to very young children even is that there's, your body is not part of your authentic self. You know, your body, uh, the BBC had a, a document, not a documentary, um, it was kind of like a teen video. And it showed a young girl who identified as non-binary. And she said, your body is just a meat skeleton, a meat skeleton. Um, and it, you don't take your identity from your body, you take your identity from your feelings. So the body has been denigrated to just a meat skeleton that tells you nothing about who you are, that gives you no clue to your identity, that gives you no moral guidelines, um, and that um, has no intrinsic purpose that you're morally obligated to, to respect. So that is the underlying view. Surprisingly enough, because we, the stereotype is that Christians have a low view of this world and of the body, right? Because it's the spirit that counts. And it's the spiritual realm that counts, not the earthly realm. And so for a long time, people thought it's Christianity that denigrates the physical material world. Uh, one of my students put it this way. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. But it turns out that in comparison with the secular worldviews that are dominant today, it's actually the Christian worldview that uh, promotes a very high view of the body that says you are supposed to respect your body. You are supposed to honor your body. When it comes to questions like transgenderism, you are supposed to have a harmony between your feelings and your physical self. You are meant to honor your biological sex. You are meant to respect your body. You're, you are meant to live in harmony with who God created you to be. So it turns out that the, 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 uh, the nature of the debate has actually you know, the, the tables have been turned. And so now it's Christians who are defending a high view of the body over against a secular worldview that says your body doesn't matter, has no particular meaning or, or significance, and why should you pay any attention to it anyway? That's really helpful. I think, you know, just to tease that out a little bit more, that separation between the physical body and what we might call the immaterial part of us, the, our mind, our will, and our emotions, our spiritual life. Um, you've kind of illustrated how that works out in transgender issues. How do you see that dynamic playing out in the abortion debate? Right. Actually, that's, when, that's where people first noticed it. Um, secular bioethicists say, well, first of all, they do acknowledge that the fetus is human. Not everybody knows that, but among professional secular bioethicists, they all agree that life begins at conception. Uh, the, the evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. Read any embryology textbook. So the question then is, how do they get around that to support abortion? Well, what they say is the fetus is biologically human, physiologically, chromosomally, you know, genetically human but it's not a person until sometime later. With personhood defined usually in some form of uh, cognitive abilities, 
some sort of self-awareness um, and um, you know, the ability to make choices, the ability to think about the future. There's all kinds of ways that, that bioethicists try to define it, but it has something to do with your mental abilities. And so what the bio, I mean, it started with Roe v. Wade. In the 1973 Supreme Court abortion decision, he said point blank, the fetus is human from conception, but it's not a person until sometime later. So the Supreme Court was giving expression to this divided view that you can be human at one point and yet not be a person until sometime later. So clearly these are two different things. So that's where that dualism, that divide, that dichotomy between body and person first was first noticed that secular uh, bioethicists had adopted this divided, fragmented view of the human person. So essentially what secular bioethicists are saying today is that being human is not enough for human rights because that the fetus can be human and, and not have any rights. Being human is not enough to have any moral status. It's not enough to warrant legal protection. So being human is no longer the basis for human rights. You don't, you have to earn the right to life by becoming a person, by acquiring certain mental abilities, cognitive functioning, and so on. And so the split between body and person is right there in, uh, in the abortion issue as well. Essentially, uh, the, the pro-abortion view is based on the notion you can be a human at one point, but you don't become a person until sometime later, and rights don't kick in until the state decides you're a person. Uh, and not just because you're a human. I, I, have to, I have to try to tell them, when I speak to audiences, I try to tell them, I try to help them see how momentous this really is. I say, you think you, think you have rights because you're, just because you're a human being. You know, that is the traditional notion of human rights, or really the Christian notion, because it's built into the Declaration of Independence, right? Well, uh, we hold these, these to be, these, uh, this to be uh, self-evident, these truths to be self-evident. Uh, that you have certain inalienable rights because you're made in the image of the creator. Well, that's no longer true. You do not have the inalienable right to life anymore just because you're human, just because you're a member of the human race. Roe v. Wade destroyed that. It said, no, you do not have human rights just because you're human. And the logic of that then is anyone else who's human does not have human rights just on the basis of being human. They have human rights only if the state decides they qualify as a person. So this has really quite wide-ranging implications. Nancy, when I read your book, um, one of the things that really jumped out to me was a, a thread that I had been thinking about all the way back from when I read St. Augustine's Confessions, and he was talking about his time with the Manichaeans, and I didn't really at the time understand what they were all about until I read Peter Brown's uh, biography of Augustine, and he explained a little more about Manichaeans and uh, just how that's kind of related to some of that early Gnosticism. I wonder if you could maybe comment on that, because when I'm hearing what you're saying, um, you know, of course, Gnosticism was very broad and diverse, and there was a lot of uh, beliefs that fell under those different umbrellas. There were different sects and all of that. But um, maybe you could comment on, do you think that some of that Gnostic thought has influenced where our secular culture is today when it comes to this division between personhood and, and body? Well, certainly it's very similar. Certainly it's parallel. I don't know if you can trace an exact historical connection, but it's, um, it should encourage us 
Now, the Christian church has faced the same thing before. Uh, the early church faced a culture, that uh, an ancient Greek and Roman culture, that also devalued the physical world, the physical body, and not just Manichaeism and Gnosticism, also Neoplatonism. Plato said the body is the prison of the soul. And so the goal of salvation was to escape from the physical realm and to reascend the higher levels um, and reunite with the mystic one, the one, as in Eastern thought. Um, so the early church faced um, the same notion that the body has no particular value or dignity. In fact, the Gnosticism actually taught it was a lower level deity, an evil god. Gnosticism taught that there were several levels of spiritual beings, and it was the lowest level who was an evil god who created this world, because after all, no self-respecting god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. So Christianity in this context was nothing short of revolutionary because it taught, first of all, that creation, creation was not by an evil God. It was by the supreme God who was a good God. And therefore, creation is intrinsically good. And even though we accept the idea of the fall, it does not totally negate its original goodness. It's kind of like a, when a child defaces a great, manu, a great masterpiece, artistic masterpiece. You can still see the beauty of the original masterpiece coming through. But the greatest scandal in the ancient world was the incarnation, because that was the idea that that same supreme deity had actually entered into the physical world and taken on a physical body, so that the incarnation was the ultimate validation of the dignity of the human body. And then when you might say Jesus did escape the physical realm, as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do when he was executed on a Roman cross, but what did he do then? He came back in a physical body. To the ancient Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. What they, their response to the, to the resurrection was, who would want to come back to the realm of the body? As Paul puts it, the, the idea of the physical resurrection was utter foolishness to the Greeks. That's how he puts it in, in uh, course, at the end of time, you know, Christians, even Christians tend to think end of time, you know, we're, we're floating around in an immaterial spiritual realm. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that God is going to recreate you know, a, a new heavens and a new earth, and we will be on that new earth in physical bodies. All the way back to the beginning, the Apostles' Creed is affirmed the resurrection of the body. So this I, I try to tell people, like when I have I speak to audiences, I try to get, get them to understand the treasure that we have here. This is an extraordinarily high view of the physical realm. There is no other religion or philosophy that has such a high view of the value and significance of the material realm. Nothing like it anywhere. We should be so excited that when we talk to people, we're just overflowing with the, the joy of having such a wonderful message to give them. Francis Schaeffer used to say the, the, um, the biblical worldview doesn't start with Jesus died for your sins. It starts with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth because the creation itself tells us of the beauty and dignity of this world. And, and so we need to start with that as our, our message. I think just as a clarification, I, th I think it's so powerful and I don't want it to pass 
people by of the historic Christian position as being very affirming of the physical body, being affirming of an integrated uh, human person, body, soul, and spirit. Um, I don't know, like you said, if we have a deep enough appreciation for that position. And sometimes we inadvertently buy into this bifurcation between the physical body and the what our our culture calls like the most authentic part of ourself is our emotions and and how we feel about things um maybe we could talk a little bit more about how you see that playing out and then i want to get into you know the redeeming message of historic christianity and how it answers some of these questions about transgenderism so let's let's shift maybe to homosexuality and use that as an yeah. example, because that's it's the same thing. It's just, um, like Elisa said at the beginning, it's a common worldview connecting all of them. Let me put it this way. Even when I talk to my homosexual friends, they will agree that on the level of biology, physiology, chromosomes, anatomy, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity, therefore, is to implicitly contradict that design. It's to say, why should my body have any say in my identity? Why should my body inform my moral choices? Why should my biological sex have, have any say in who I am, in my, my authentic identity? And what we have to help people to see is that's a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. Essentially, it's saying that my body has nothing to do with who I am. You know, it's not, it's, it's very close to the transgender idea in that, um, you, you know, you're not going to go into surgery and chop off body parts, but you are still saying that my body has nothing to do with who I am. Let me give you an example. Um, because she, uh, there's a well-known public intellectual who expresses this so well. Uh, her name is Camille Paglia. You, you all may know her. Yes. Yeah. Elisa is nodding. A lot of Christians read her work, even though she's a lesbian. By the way, Elisa, did you know she's now claiming to be trans? For many years, she was. Uh, I did not identified. know. That. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely does now. But for many years, she claimed to be lesbian. Either way. Um, but she's interesting because uh, she's a little bit of an icono, uh, iconoclastic feminist because she does not accept that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. So you say to her, well, then how do you justify being a lesbian or now trans? And these are her exact words. Okay, so nature made us male and female, but then she says, quote, why not defy nature? Why not defy nature? And then she goes on to say, quote, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So do you see the logic there? The logic is that if our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose that we're morally obligated to respect. They give us no clue to our identity. They give us no roadmap to our morality. We may do with them as we see fit. So really, it comes down to your view of nature. You know, your body is 
your body is part of nature. <laughs> and so it turns out that your ethic ultimately depends on your view of nature. So Camille Pogli is saying if the body is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, you know, then, then they have nothing to say to us in terms of my, our morality. Whereas a Christian worldview says, wait, wait a minute, nature itself exhibits a plan, a design, an order, a purpose. Science tells us that on a very simple level, eyes are made for seeing, ears are made for hearing, fins are made for swimming, and wings are made for flying. And the uh, and total development of the organism is directed by an inbuilt, inbuilt plan or blueprint. So science itself tells us that, that nature is built according to a design. And so what Christians are saying is that when we live in accord with that design, we will be happier and healthier. And I'll, I'll give you um, just an anecdote. There's a, the, the book Love Thy Body is full of anecdotes, by the way. People are considering reading it. It's not just moral arguments. There are lots and lots of stories. And one of my favorite ones is a woman who lived as a lesbian for many years. And, uh, and, and today is married married to a man, not to say that now, married to a man and has two, two children. She, she wrote an article on how she changed. And she said, um, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. And I thought, what beautiful language. That's what we need to learn how to do. When people say, you know, tell me what to do practically, I always say, just start with changing your language. Start talking about honoring your body, living in accord with the creator's design, respecting our biological sex as God's handiwork. So that's where, um, you know, Krista, you started talking about, you know, where's the redemptive part. That's where we start the, talking about the redemptive side of it is recovering the high value and dignity receiving our bodies as good gifts from God. And it seems like, you know, you mentioned Camille Paglia. It's, it's like to even say you're transitioning from female to male, you would have to have some sort of objective standard by which to say, this is female, this is male. I'm moving from one to the other. And in your book, you write this, you say, to protect women's rights, we must be able to say what a woman is. If postmodernism is correct, that the body itself is a social construct, then it becomes impossible to argue for rights based on the sheer fact of being female. We cannot legally protect a category of people if we cannot identify that category. And I think we're seeing, even from the from some secular feminists like J.K. Rowling and some of these people that are pushing back uh, against some of this postmodern uh, push when it comes to gender. And I wonder if you might comment a bit on how postmodernism really... Um, sort of defines and underlies some of this secular morality that we're seeing where all of these categories seem to be blended and it's like on one sense we're saying no there's no objective uh, you know standard to say this is the female sex and this is the male but yet at the same time we're going to say we can move to, from one to the other I wonder if you could comment on that yeah you, I mean you've, you've absolutely put your finger on an internal contradiction that uh, it, it, I think it's a fatal internal contradiction. But I, of, I often talk about this in terms of finding allies. Um, one of the things that uh, people say, well, what do we do, what do we do? You know, practically, what do we do? And one of my answers is find allies. And right now, 
some of our best allies are radical feminists who are recognizing what you just read there, that you cannot protect women's rights if you cannot define what a woman is. If anybody with any anatomy can claim to be a woman, then the term has no, no meaning. And you truly cannot defend women's rights if you cannot define what a woman is. And so <laughs> I actually belong to a group. Um, it's, it, you can find it on Facebook. Uh, I'm on the private version of it, but there's a public version as well. It's called Hands Across the Aisle. And it's, <laughs> it's a group of very conservative Christian women and very leftist, feminist, socialist, many lesbian uh, women who are uh, very concerned about the transgender movement. So um, these are the women who are called TERFs. Have you heard that term, T-E-R-F, TERFs? Trans-exclusionary radical feminist. It's, it, it's intended as a slur. So feminists who do not accept the transgender movement are, are slurred as TERFs. So these are TERFs. <laughs> And what we do is we get together and, uh, and, and we support one another. Uh, we, we have written position papers together. We've co-authored op-ed pieces together. Um, you know, we've, we've spoken at uh, hearings at the state and national level and so on. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to see how Christians and feminists have come together on this issue. And on the side of the radical feminists, um, they're in shock because the only place that they can get published these days is in Christian publications. Many of them are leaders of feminist movements who've been leaders for many years, who are well-known in the in feminist movements, who are well-known you know, in, in feminist publications, and now they can't get their work published anymore because they've come out against the transgender movement and saying that you know, it's going to destroy the feminist movement. And so, and so they're, play, they're publishing in places like the Christian Post, which I think is wonderful, and Public Discourse and the Federalist and these other sort of Christian-leaning places, um, places like the Federalist and explicitly Christian, like the Christian Post, but they're Christian-leaning. Um, so all of, a, all of a sudden, you know, they're like, they sometimes get criticized by their, Christian, by their fellow feminists, like, why are you publishing in these Christian conservative places? And they have to say, they're the only places that will take our work anymore. So this has been wonderful that we've been able to build bridges with very radical uh, feminists on this issue. So I often raise it not only in terms of, like you said, um, you know, it, it's a good it's a good form of critiquing transgenderism uh, because it is self contradictory, but also take it a step further, go out and make allies of people that you might not have ever thought of allies before because we are making a lot of allies with the radical feminists these days. And it's, it's wonderful to see these two movements coming together. I'm thinking about um, kind of a little bit about my own life. Um, I am probably, I don't know, the, <laughs> I, I just am a tomboy who never outgrew it. And, you know, I think that I saw an article, I've seen a couple of articles recently of how this, this idea of the trans movement is actually wiping out people like me, you know, that because we can't really define what a woman is, people like me, where there's a comment on Elisa's stream, she says uh, from a woman, she says, I play women's rugby and homosexuality is a huge part of that culture. I'm often asked by my teammates if, you know, I'm a lesbian and, and I've 
gone through that too, that reality. And it's like, no, I'm happily married. I've been married for 28 years. I have two children. Um, you know, I'm living the dream, but I enjoy sports and have enjoy being athletic. But now it seems like the so much of the messaging is, you know, when I was growing up, I there was no part of me that ever doubted that I was a woman and that I would probably grow up one day and get married and have children. Um, but now the messaging is, is like, well, if you like certain things, then, you know, you're, you're probably misgendered. You're probably need to be a boy. And it, it, it does erase kind of people like me who are, just a little different, but I never doubted that, that I was a woman. And so this whole postmodern kind of con- construct of gender, it, I can see how if I was a child growing up right now, that I could easily fall into that. But there was, when I was growing up and I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm older, quite a bit older than Elisa, but you know, when I was growing up, there was still the strong messaging of even if I was a tomboy, I was still a girl. I wasn't a defective boy. Well, it's actually gone a step further than that. Now, my parents are reporting that even their gay and lesbian kids are under pressure from transgender activists, that that's not good enough, that they have to be trans. Those are, uh, I follow some of the websites that are started by uh, parents of transgender kids. Uh, the one I like the best is uh, Fourth Wave Now, Fourth Wave Now, and it's uh, parents whose kids came out as trans and who you know, band together to give each other moral support and practical support. Um, anyway, they have sometimes used the phrase gay genocide. There's a gay genocide by which they mean that, you know, they're, they're very, this is a very secular liberal website, so they're fine with their kids being gay. They just don't want them to go trans because transgenderism is such an extremely uh, large step from that in the sense of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, surgeries, not just one surgery, but, you know, the multiple surgeries. Um, so they, they are against their kids going, up, going to the trans, um, identifying as trans. Um, but what they say is our beautiful gay kids are being, are being pressured by trans activists who say you're not going far enough. That if you have, if you are, if you come out as a lesbian because you're some, somewhat more masculine, uh, they're being bullied and pressured to admit, no, no, you're not just gay. You are really trans, and you know you should be courageous enough to come out and admit it. And so there are fewer and fewer kids today who are identifying as homosexual because as soon as you come out as homosexual. You're pressured to go further and identify as trans. So the pressure has changed even since you were young. Now, uh, remember, keep in mind that word, gay genocide. These parents are complaining that their kids are being bullied if they, if they come out as attracted to the same sex. And so that's not enough. And let, let me give you, um, uh, just to give you a practical uh, story, um, I do tell a story in Love Thy Body of a uh, of a young boy who had gender dysphoria. There's two kinds of gender dysphoria, and we can talk about both if you want, but the, traditionally gender dysphoria has, has, uh, has appeared at a very young age. You know, true gender dysphoria has appeared at a very young age. Today we have a, you know, an epidemic of young girls who are just discovering that they're trans at a, uh, when they're teenagers. But I, um, I, but I tell the story of a young boy who, 
who had classic gender dysphoria, and I, I called him Brandon, um, and before he was even walking, it was very evident that he didn't fit boy stereotypes. You know, his, his babysitter said to his mom, he's too good to be a boy, by which she meant, you know, he was quiet and compliant and gentle on the things that we typically associate with girls. When he was in preschool, every day when his mother picked him up, he was playing with the little girls and not the little boys. Already in elementary school, he was coming to his parents in tears repeatedly and saying, you know, I, I don't fit in with the boys. I, I wait, his exact words, if I can remember what, I think like a girl, I, I think the way girls do, I feel the way girls do. God should have made me a girl. By age of 14, he was scouring the internet for information on sex change surgery. So what did his parents do? First of all, they made a point of letting him know that they loved him just the way he was. I think uh, parents often try to pressure their children to be different. When I was in seminary, I had a friend who was a former homosexual, and he said, my, <laughs> I like music and art. And my dad was baffled and tried to pressure me into more traditional male activities like sports. And Brandon's parents didn't do that. They told him it's perfectly okay for you to be an emotional, sensitive, relational boy. It does not mean that you're really a girl. They, um, they took him through the gifts of the spirit. You know, in the gifts of the spirit, prophecy and teaching are not masculine, as you and I might think. Mercy and service are not feminine, as we might think. The, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit gives them to individuals as he chooses. Uh, his parents even took him through Myers, uh, personality details like the Myers-Briggs to show him it's okay. You know, the, the full spectrum of, of personalities is open to you. You can be at this far spectrum or you can be at that far spectrum and still be a girl, uh, still be a boy. And equally, of course, a girl can be at this end of the spectrum or that end and still be a girl. A girl can be sort of take charge, assertive, um, and, and, and that's perfectly fine. So the, the upshot is that, um, oh, and I should say, gender dysphoria is very uh, intractable. It took a long time. Uh, it wasn't really until his early 20s that Brandon fully accepted his identity as a boy. Here's what he said. He said, even surgery wouldn't give me what I want. It would not make me a girl which is true. There's a, fam there's a very famous TED talk um, called His, Her, Healthcare. But the most famous line from the TED talk is every cell has a sex. Every cell has a sex. And it's by a cardiologist. And the cardiologist's concern is that, um, as a, as a you know, her concern is health, his heart attacks. And she said, the symptoms of an impending heart attack are different for women than for men. And most doctors are only taught, you know, a lot of the research is done only in men. So doctors are taught what to look for based on the, the male symptoms. So a woman comes in and the doctor doesn't recognize the symptoms because he hasn't been trained to see them. He sends her home and she has a heart attack. So that's the, you know, that's the theme of this TED talk. But as I went, as I, as I read the TED talk, uh, I went on, the, on YouTube to, re, to, to watch it. And underneath were all these comments saying, 
she's so transphobic. <laughs> what? She wasn't even talking about transgenderism. The very fact that she had acknowledged a male-female binary meant she was transphobic. And, and I, I kept reading about, you know, I thought, I, I got to find out what people are saying, right? And finally, some wise person said, look, she's not transphobic. She's just saying that when you get sick and the doctors put you on the operating table, they need to know your original biological sex to give you the best medical care. <laughs> so every cell has a sex. And that's what Brandon came to see. You can't change every, sex, every cell in the human body. So surgery, surgery and hormones don't do it. Um, so yeah, Brandon's in his early 20s now. But that's, um, I give lots of stories like that to help people, give people practical tips and how to uh, work with young people in your family, in your church, in your Christian school. Um, and, and by the way, I give some um, uh, uh, academic, academic studies. Academic studies have found that the most reliable predictor of non-heterosexual behavior, either uh, homosexuality or transgenderism, the most reliable predictor is not any genetic or biological cause. Most reliable predictor is simply non-conforming behavior in childhood, non-gender conforming behavior in childhood. In other words, kids who are acting like the opposite sex. That's it. That is the most, by far the most reliable predictor of kids who could end up uh, claiming a homosexual or transgender identity. And so what this means is we can be on the lookout for these kids. We can stand, get out, go out of our way to help and support them because they are going to be targeted. You can be absolutely certain they will be targeted by homosexual and transgender activists. And so a practical step we can take is to go out of our way to give extra support, love, and affirmation to the kids who don't fit in and who are prone to feeling, well, like Brandon did, you know, I don't fit in anywhere I don't fit any of the stereotypes. So the church can be proactive in, in terms of uh, ministering to these young people. Such an important point. And I'm so glad that you pointed people to the stories that you write in your book, because I think that's such a powerful way to help people understand on a really practical, even emotional level of, of how this affects people. And I just want to urge everybody watching, if you haven't dug into some of the what's called the detransition stories, it's a growing movement of people who are coming out saying, look, and these and by the way, these are not people who are against transgenderism, typically, you know, in, in they're they're actually for transition in certain cases, but in their particular cases, their doctors didn't question when they wanted the sex change. The doctors didn't offer didn't offer to try to find out what was going on in their psyche that might be leading them to change their body when that wouldn't be necessary. And so there are lots of people who are coming out now saying, you know, my body is now per, per, permanently damaged. And nobody, like this doctor that I know was trying to help me actually hurt me. And and they're being silenced. People won't listen to their stories. And, and they get, like Nancy, you mentioned in the comments, people are saying they're transphobic or this or that. But I think it's a, it's a really important thing for people to dig into. One Another resource, as well as Love Thy Body, that really highlights this is in Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, he devotes an entire chapter to the de uh, transition stories. So I encourage people to check that out as well. Uh, but Nancy, in Love Thy Body, you give summary 
journeys of various thinkers throughout history, from Freud to Sanger to Kinsey. Um, what do these thinkers all have in common, and how does that relate with where you think our culture is at when it comes to things like sex and gender? Well, can I give a, de a really cool detransitional story first? Yeah, <laughs> you mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> huh. So here's one of my favorite stories. Um, there was a woman who um, successfully passed as a man for 10 years. Um, and then she converted to Christianity. And it was interesting because at first she didn't think that, well, you know, sanctification takes some time. So at first she thought it was perfectly okay for her to remain living as a man. And she writes, um, I aspired to be a real man of God. Uh, and then one day, then one day when she was praying, she seemed to hear God say to her, you cannot claim to love me and yet reject my creation. This creation being, you know, her body, that she was physically female. And so this is, this is a, the case we need to make is that biblical morality is based on accepting who God made us, um, that it, it, it's not just loving God, it's loving his creation. Now, she became a Christian. Um, this, I'll, I'll give you a, sec, a story of a woman who didn't become a Christian, but who detransitioned. Because um, this shows you that even secular liberal people are starting to see through it. And again, this, both of these came out after my book was already published. So they're not in the book. Um, but there was, a, there was a girl who uh, did an interview on, on the website that I mentioned, Fourth Wave Now. Um, she detransitioned at age 14. She had transitioned to a boy at age 11 and lived as a trans boy for three years before detransitioning and reclaimed her identity as a girl. And on the website, she said, the turning point came, and this is a direct quote, when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And I thought, whoa, I wish I'd had that quote for a book titled Love Thy Body. So he was even a non-Christian recognizing that the key issue was do you love your body? Um, you'll start to see this now even in secular um, context. Secular people are starting to say transgenderism equals body hatred. Body hatred. So they're starting to recognize, you know, it's been three years since Love Thy Body came out and now even secular people are saying the core of the issue is do you love your body? And that, that transgenderism is about promoting body hatred. Um, yeah, in Love Thy Body, I talk. I have a chapter on uh, the hookup culture, and that's where I talk more about sort of the, the architects of the sexual revolution, like Freud and um, Kinsey and Margaret Sanger and others. And they're in a little bit different uh, philosophy from the people we've been talking about. Essentially, there's modernism and there's postmodernism, right? And I think one of the things that's been difficult for Christians in this issue is that most of our Christian apologists have been equipping us to answer the challenges from modernism. They've mostly been equipping us to answer questions from materialism, naturalism, you know, empiricism, rationalism. These are all modernist worldviews. They all claim to be based on science. Um, Whereas the issues of transgenderism and homosexuality are coming from postmodernism. And most of our Christian apologists have not been trained in postmodernism. And that's one reason that they haven't 
really sort of caught up, you know, with the Foucault and people like Foucault and Judith Butler who are coming from a very different perspective. These are completely postmodern. And here's the difference. People like Freud and Kinsey and Sanger were all still trying to explain the human body and human sexuality in modernist terms. You know, the human body was still just a, a machine. You know, Dawkins calls this a meat machine, Richard, Richard Dawkins. Um, but Kinsey, too. Kinsey said we're just a human animal. He talked about humans as just being part of the mammalian, the mammalian species, as he put it. Uh, and uh, Margaret Sanger, if you've ever, ever read any of her books, she was a sold out Darwinist. And her whole goal was to come up with a view of sexuality that would be compatible with and based solely on Darwinism. So those thinkers were all very modernists. Um, and we have to have a somewhat different apologetic to them, as opposed to people like Foucault and Butler who say, who cares about the body? <laughs> we don't take our identity from our body. What counts is, you know, the, the when we talked at the beginning, when we talked about the split between body and person. Okay, so the modernists are still stuck with the body. Francis Schaeffer used the imagery of two stories in a building. And, and he wasn't the only one. There are a lot of philosophers who use that, for, that image. But modernism is in the lower story where you care about science and you reduce humans to just complex biochemical machines. Postmodernists are in the upper story where they care only about the, the person, not the body, but the person. So they care about the internal feelings and sense of self and your inner experiences. And they're making very different arguments. And, and one of the things, one of the challenges I think for Christians is to realize you have to have different set of arguments for, for modernism as opposed to postmodernism. So the section in the book where I deal with um, the modernists um, is, is the the um, chapter on the, on the hookup culture, which is still very much geared towards um, uh, as one, I quote several, uh, several college students who say, um, sex is just a physical connection. You know, one, one student named Alyssa said, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body. You make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Or a, a drummer from Austin, Texas, who said, sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. So you see, these, guys, these are guys in the lower story. They're, this is the modernist mindset. And sex is just a bodily function. It's kind of like, I call it the Proverbs 31 view. Proverbs 31 is, it, it, it says, a, it's talking about the woman who's committed adultery. And it says, it says she wipes her mouth and says, well, I've done nothing wrong. In other words, sex is just like a physical appetite. When you're hungry, you fulfill it. No big deal. It's no big deal for your sexuality. So many of, our, many of the architects of, our, of the sexual revolution are still in the modern, modernist mindset. And they're the people who try to say, uh, you know, like I said, sex is just a matter of, uh, it's, it's totally cut off it's from the rich inner life of the whole person. And so that takes a, a different apologetic. That says, that's, that says, you know, is, do you really think sex is fulfilling if it's just physical? Nobody really wants sexuality to be purely physical. Everyone being made in God's image really is reaching out for some level of personal connection. And so our, our 
apologetic to that that mindset is different. Um, but it's, it's, it's very important because it's still very influential on our college campuses and so on. But that's when you ask me, what about, you know, Freud and Kinsey and Sanger? That's their mindset. And that's the apologetic we need to frame for them. I think that's really helpful about hookup culture. That's a very powerful uh, way of thinking about it as, you know, another example of how we separate the physical body from you know the what our culture calls the authentic self but you're making a point nancy that i've been making for a while and i'm so heartened to hear you say this because i i've had difficulty being persuading people that much of traditional apologetics is really responding to questions of modernism and i think that there's a growing set of questions that's coming out of postmodernism that apologists are trying to catch up with um, and that we need to do more work in, in that area. Um, I'm wondering if we could go to a couple of uh, questions on the YouTube streams. We've got one on the, all the things stream from Darlene. She says, do you see the bioethicist views as a prelude to allowing abortion after a baby is born. Their definition, I'm thinking of personhood, leaves a lot of people in danger, including senior citizens. A lot of these secular bioethicists are already arguing that. So some secular bioethicists think that the, the fetus becomes human before birth. But there are some who argue that the fetus doesn't become human until after birth. Two of the most prominent examples are Francis Crick and Crick and Watson, the two people who, uh, who discovered the double helix structure of DNA. They're very famous scientists and both of them said, you should allow for say three days of genetic testing after birth. The idea being that some genetic defects don't show up until after birth. And so only if the fetus passes those tests, does it qualify as a person and you decide to allow it to live. Another prominent bioethicist is Peter Singer at Princeton University. So that tells you he's pretty prominent. Um, Peter Singer has said that even three years of age is a gray area. That's his words. It's a gray area because after all, how much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? So you are absolutely right. Already people are secular bioethicists have been arguing that birth should not be considered you know, the dividing line. And uh, and, and you talked about um, elderly people too. Yeah, um, if you, in, in Love Thy Body, I do have a section on euthanasia because you're absolutely right. It's the same reasoning, just applied in reverse. In other words, in abortion, you're human until you acquire certain cognitive functioning. But in euthanasia, if you lose certain cognitive functioning, then you are no longer a person and you would become merely human. You become merely a biological organism with no particular dignity or rights or, or moral status. Uh, as one bioethicist put it, you're only a body, you're only a body. And at that point, your, your uh, food and water can be discontinued. Your medical treatment can be stopped. Your organs can be harvested. So Already, we are at the point where people are arguing for euthanasia based on the same reasoning, just in reverse. 
instead of acquiring personhood, you lost personhood. And so you are no longer a person. So that you are quite right. That's why the whole concept of personhood is so dangerous is because you know, technically anybody, ultimately anyone could be declared a non-person, right? I mean, in every culture across history, we've seen some people declared you know, non-persons. And as soon as people are declared to be non-persons, they, they become fair game. You know, for for various kinds of uh, persecution and various kinds of uh, you know uh, take their rights taken away and so on. I mean, every every culture has had that, but now it's just that now we have all these academics giving academic uh, support to the idea that that you can be a human and still be a non-person. In fact, that's what they're calling it: human non-persons. Human non-persons is, is the label being used. So yes, you could be a human non-person, in which case. We've acknowledged that you're human, but you don't have any rights. It seems like that extension, Joanne is asking kind of as a follow-up to that, that if personhood has prerequisites, then individuals who are maybe born handicapped possibly might not be considered persons either in some cases. It seems like that would be a natural possibility there as well. Certainly, especially mental handicap. Okay. Very good. All right, Elisa, do you have any questions from your channel? Yeah, I've got some comments and then um, I'll, I'll ask. There's a question here, too, but there's just this really sweet comment from Anna Flower. And she said, I socially detransitioned. I didn't have any surgeries. And that whole ordeal was still so psychologically damaging for me. I subconsciously wanted to escape my identity slash body because of trauma. And she said, I had rabbit onset gender dysphoria. And then this is where I think she's giving really good advice here. She said, therapists need to focus on body reconnection. So, so you know, making the body line up with the mind rather than letting the mind lead what we do with the body. And so I thought that was a, a great comment from Anna Flower there. Um, Nancy, I've got can, a I, can I respond to that before you Please, go on? Yes. Question? Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you, Anna. That's a, that's a very good comment. And um, one thing that I wanted, you know, we didn't talk about, rapid onset gender dysphoria. And so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, one of the things, you know, there was a um, study done of rapid onset gender dysphoria at Brown University by Lisa Littman. And I thought the, the most significant thing to come out of this study, that's the first study done of rapid onset gender dysphoria, but um, the most significant finding was that most people with rapid onset gender dysphoria suffer additional mental health issues. Some of the most common are autism, anxiety, depression, ADHD, um, self-harm, like cutting, OCD, et cetera. The most reliable, uh, the most common is autism. Nobody quite knows why, but autism has been most reliably connected with, uh, back, even back when it was called transsexualism. So for a long time, autism has been connected to transsexualism. But anyway, these teens already, um, let me see, the uh, 63%, 63% of these teens had been diagnosed with at least one mental health disorder prior to the onset of their gender dysphoria. And let me emphasize the word diagnosed. Most teens do have some anxiety and depression, but these were teens whose issues were so severe that they had already received counseling and had been diagnosed. And so two, two takeaways from that. Number one is it is really medical, medical malpractice to simply 
uh, fast track these young people into transitioning without asking any questions about the medical or the mental health history. And yet that is, that is the most common pattern now. I, t- I had a chance to uh, do an inter- interview with several parents for an article that I wrote for The Federalist. And it was really amazing talking you know, firsthand to these parents. And I got so many stories that went like this. My, my daughter went to see the gender clinic. They talked for 30 minutes and the gender clinician said, congratulations, you're a boy. Here's how to get testosterone. 30 minutes. That was very common, very typical. So number one, that, um, that's medical malpractice because these kids need a whole lot more. Number two, what does it mean for us? You know, um, this is not just an apologetic issue where we want to argue the truth of the Christian worldview. This is where we need to realize these are very troubled kids. And we need to have a ministry to them. When we have rapidance, well, either one, either form of gender dysphoria, in our churches and our Christian schools and our families, we need to realize these are already very troubled kids. From what I've talked to, to, to teachers and counselors, they tend to be much more troubled, for example, than kids who suffer from same-sex attraction, much worse. Um, so we need to think about that when they show up in our, in our lives, is that we need to treat them with a lot of love and support and um, not just treat this as a, um, you know, as an argument for a particular view of sexuality. So uh, I wanted to be sure and say that before we went on. Um, Yeah, that's good. And and that kind of leads us into this. uh, Maybe this will be like the final question here. Uh, But this is from an account called I Will Not Be Shaken. And I love how you mentioned, you know, we need to show love and empathy and support and all of that. And the question is, um, so how do we recommend we deal with, uh, this is a specific question to this person, how do you recommend that I deal with contention between my teammate who wants me to call her him? I said it's against the law of God and I won't go against him. Um, What's your advice on that? You know, when we're dealing in real life situations with people who are walking through this and they, they want us, you know, to use a certain pronoun or a name, or maybe there's a difference there, how would you go about uh, exploring that, that topic? Of course, the best thing is if you can really build a relationship so that you can give context, right? So um, we talked about how a lovely body has a lot of stories. And actually, this is one of my favorite as well. Um, it's the story, a story in the chapter on homosexuality. And it's a story about a young man named Sean, Sean Doherty, um, who says he was exclusively same-sex attracted uh, in all of his growing up years. But today he's married to a woman and has three kids. And by the way, he's also a Christian ethics professor (laughs) in London. Um, But here's the interesting thing about his story. He grew up in a gay affirming family and attended a gay affirming church. So he felt like there was nothing wrong with being homosexuality, sexual. He he was not driven by any sense of guilt or shame. And so you say, well, why did he change then? He said, I, def- I, decided to def- to, I decided to stop defining myself by my sexual feelings and instead to define myself by my body. After all, our feelings can change and sometimes do. But your body is an empirical, knowable fact. It's scientifically knowable. It doesn't change. It makes a lot more sense to base your sexual identity on your body. And so he says, 
I decided to acknowledge what I already had. Instead of trying to change my feelings, I decided to acknowledge what I already had, which was a male body as a good gift from God. And then my feelings started to follow suit. So that is really the question at the core of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind material causes or a cosmos created by a loving creator, which is therefore intrinsically good? And therefore I should be treating my body as intrinsically good. And see, here's where we need time to talk to our friends um, as opposed to just saying, well, you know, yes or no, right or wrong. We want to say, well, the Christian ethic is based on the, on the conviction that your body is a good gift from God and that he wants you to affirm your body as part of your identity. He does not want to see you fragmented, fractured, divided between your body and your mind. You know, the question is, if your mind and your body are, uh, are in contradiction to each other, which one do you go with? Well, your body is the one that actually is, doesn't change. There's, um, there's a statistic here that um, you should memorize. <laughs> we should all memorize. Uh, Lisa, Di Lisa Diamond is a senior researcher with the American Psychological Association, and she was a person who first discovered that sexual identity is sometimes fluid. You know, we hear the, top, the concept a lot now, sexuality being fluid. Well, all that came out of Lisa Diamond. She was the one who first started uh, asking people, okay, you identify as lesbian or gay. What was the last time you had um, an attraction to the opposite sex? And she was discovered that for many people, last week, it was last month, you know, that many people who had come out as, as uh, non-heterosexual actually had a lot of heterosexual feelings still. And that's why she came up with the notion of fluidity. So here's the, here's the statistic. Of people who come out as non-heterosexual, 80%, 80% change their sexual identity label at least once, at least once, which means sometimes it's more. 80% who come out as non-heterosexual change their sexual identity label at least once. What that means is, yes, your feelings definitely do change. Your body doesn't. But even among non-heterosexuals, their feelings do change. And so it is rational to say, well, maybe, maybe I should take a second look and think more about well, how, how does my body form my identity? And should I maybe be giving greater emphasis to my body as something that's good and something that I should value? Um, and, and maybe I should investigate why I feel uncomfortable with my body. Maybe there's some psychological reasons for that. And the, but the message, the overwhelming message should be the Christian ethic is based on valuing your body, your physical identity, living in harmony with who God made you. You want the time to talk to somebody to where you can give that context. That is the reason for the Christian ethic. That's the only way you're going to win people over. But that will win people over. A positive message like that. Your body, you know, we live in a cosmos created by a loving God, and our body is therefore intrinsically good. Nobody else is telling them that. So the Christian view, you know, if we rephrase our language so that it's positive and, and uh, firming like that, I think then we'll get a hearing in a postmodern world. That's so helpful. I'm thinking about your piece there about, you know, what Monique and I often call our creation identity, that 
part of the way that God has created us. He's created us in his image. He's created us to rule and reign over the creation. He's also made us male or female. And that is something that God has put in us from the beginning. And, and that's the thing that we can look to to say, this is how God made me. My emotions might change. Cultural message messages might be pressuring me. But I can always kind of come back to, all right, what is God's created design for me? What is, is his plan and purpose? And then ask him for help to bring my emotions, my thoughts, my practices into alignment with what he's created. That's kind of what I hear you saying as the Christian answer to, to these issues. Yeah, sounds like that's a good paraphrase. Exactly. Um, and here's, here's, here's what I found. You know, I speak to a lot of churches and Christian schools and colleges, and I was a little surprised to find out how much I have to how much I have to emphasize this, <laughs> that just changing your language is an awfully big hurdle for a lot of people. Do you remember I said one of my students said she grew up always hearing body, spirit good, body bad. It's very hard. The message that we're known for, okay, the message Christians are known for is it's wrong, it's a sin, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you. Right. That's the message we're known for. And I have found that in the audiences that I speak to, the first and hardest thing for them to do is to start changing their language to where they talk to somebody saying, uh, your body is good. Your body is a gift from God. So after one talk, for example, a young teenage boy came up and said, well, how do I talk to my friend who's, who says she's a lesbian now? And I, and I said, you know, just start talking about how, she, you know, the way she's experienced a contradiction between her feelings and her body. You know, so she, does she really want to live with that sort of dichotomy, that sort of fragmented inner life? You know, God doesn't want her to have that sort of fragmentation. God wants us to have wholeness and integration. And uh, living, living in harmony with who he created us to be. So just changing the language when you're talking to your friends. And, you know, he's just a teenage boy. You know? uh, just change your language in the very way you, you talk about it. I have found for many people that's the biggest hurdle for them to get over. Very good. Well, thank you, Nancy, for being with us. Thank you for doing this. Elisa, do you have any final words for Nancy? No, just thank you so much. This was such a, a joy to get to talk with you and uh, just so appreciative of your work and your book. And everybody needs to go follow Nancy on Twitter and on uh, social media and get the book, Love Thy Body. And uh, I, I think it's going to really enrich your understanding of some of these topics. So definitely go pick up those books. And Nancy, thank you so much. It's uh, It was really a joy to get to talk to you. And I look forward to, hearing, to, to seeing your new book as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, it's about to go into editing. So, you know, who knows? It, maybe it's a big mess. We'll find out in a minute. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I've seen some of you writing. It's not going to be a big mess. It's going to be good. Uh, thank you. Wow. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. This has just been such an honor to be able to talk to uh, a pioneer in apologetics. And thank you for all of your work that you've done over the decades. Um, just thanks for being with us and bringing your wisdom. I know based on the comments that you've really been an encouragement to a lot of people and helped helped us think this through. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's a good interview. I always appreciate thoughtful, 
thoughtful questions and you guys have you guys did have really good thoughtful penetrating questions so it was a lot of fun oh good well thank you so much good night Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.